Hello and welcome to The Bitten Word. I'm Ashley. And I'm Christine. And today we are going to be talking about Harry Potter. Again. It's about time for another Harry Potter episode. I know, I know. We really needed it. So the last episode that we did, we talked about Crystallized Pineapple and the sixth Harry Potter book, because why would we go in order? But today we are actually going to be starting right at the very beginning. And we're going to be talking about the Sorcerer's Stone, if you're in America, or the Philosopher's Stone, if you are pretty much anywhere else. So spoilers abound, just so you know, like... Really, if you're listening to this podcast and you are a reader, you have at least probably seen the Harry Potter movies, so I don't feel too bad. But just so you know, spoilers for the entire series. Like, just Harry Potter is one of those things where it's like, if you don't know anything about Harry Potter, how is that, like, how is that possible? Yeah, because unless is- you're like five. Yeah, like so, like society is so saturated with like Harry Potter that it's just like, how have you never at least heard, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, but there's your warning. So if you really just don't want to know, cause you're like in the middle of the series as an adult and somehow have not received all of the spoilers, then good on you. Cause that would be really hard. Sorry, not sorry. So I am going to give you a synopsis of this first book, just because Maybe you've only read it once, or maybe you don't know which events go in which book. kind of want to give you a short synopsis here. Harry Potter, as a baby, is left on the doorstep of his aunt and uncle after his parents have been killed. Uh, Ten years later, we see then how Harry has fared, and it's not super well. Uh, He's obviously been bullied and neglected by his aunt and uncle and cousin, And he's been enduring this while he watches his cousin get pretty much the exact opposite treatment, which is really interesting, actually, because it's like just as bad, but in a nice way. And they don't like later in the series, Dumbledore comes to get Harry in the sixth book. And he like tells the Dursleys, at least Harry has escaped the appalling damage that you've done on this boy. And all of them are like, what? (laughs) We, what? How did we mistreat Dudley? And Dudley's like, how was I mistreated? You know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like the spectrum of like the depths of neglect versus like the overindulgences and, you know, spoilings. Like he's been given too much of what he wants. Yeah, exactly. It is just so interesting to see that they're on both extremes. I guess, instead of being on one extreme, like with Dudley overindulging him, but just treating Harry normally. Mm-hmm. But no, it's like Harry is a slug on the floor and we will step on him at all costs. Yeah. And Dudley is not our child, but our, you know, authority, I guess. Yeah. So it is just really interesting. Um, but then one day, mysterious letters begin to arrive and his uncle will not allow him to read them. He wants nothing to do with them, but they keep coming and keep coming. And eventually they are found by a giant of a man who tells Harry that he is actually a wizard, wizard which is one of, yes, like (laughs) one of the most magical scenes in all of literature and even movies. Right. Do you say that makes you cry every time? No, but I am going to read the part that does make me cry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there. 
but I do, I do love it. I get that like feeling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he learns that he's been lied to by his aunt and uncle his whole life. They told him his parents died in a car crash when really they were killed by an evil wizard named Voldemort. Um, so then Harry's whole entire life changes for the better because he was in a really bad situation. He goes to the school of witchcraft and wizardry called Hogwarts, where he meets his best friends, Ron and Hermione. And over the course of the year and through Hagrid's big mouth, they discover that poor Hagrid. I know I feel bad for him, but he really can't keep a secret at all. <laughs> um, they discover that the philosophers or sorcerer's stone is hidden in the school. Um, and don't worry, we're going to talk more about what that is a little bit later. They find out that Voldemort wants this stone because it can give him new life. Because when Harry was a baby and Voldemort attacked his family, he also tried to attack Harry but his killing curse was rebounded upon himself and he was not killed, but turned into like a spirity, not ghosty form. Um, and he has been trying to get back to an actual body and like a real life since that point. And so he thinks that this stone is going to allow him to do that. So when Harry and his friends find out about this, they do the dumbest possible thing imaginable for three 11 year olds and take it on themselves. Oh my gosh. I'm like thinking of the 11 year olds I know. And I'm just like, please right? don't. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> uh, but this is, this is very typical, right? This is how most young adult uh, middle grade fiction works. And even, even shows I'm thinking like stranger things right now. Like, yeah. All, I mean, they're all kids, right? Some of them are slightly older, probably more like 20, right? But some of them are like 14. Or in the first season, they were like 11, you know? Like, they were very young, and they're taking on these humongous responsibilities of saving the world, partially because nobody believes them, I guess, about this, uh, which I think is the case here in Harry Potter, is that the adults are like, What? No, 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 no. Stone is too well protected. Can't possibly be gotten to. You don't know what you're talking about. Go do your 11-year-old thing. And so they feel the responsibility to step up. So they end up going through a bunch of challenges. And I think it is one of the big failings of this movie that they don't show Snape's challenge. Um, oh my gosh, I know. But anyway, so of course they win. They, you know, foil Voldemort's plan and they live to see another day and another year at Hogwarts. So one question I have though about this is like, how does the mirror of Erised work? If, oh, if you I have no idea, man. Yeah, if you don't know how this goes, at some point in the story, Harry stumbles on this mirror in the school that allows him to like see his greatest desire and when he looks in it the first time he sees his family because he's never known them and then Dumbledore finds him and he's like okay I'm gonna move the mirror now because you're getting too attached to it right you like to see your family too much and then at the very very end when he's trying to get to Voldemort the mirror is there at the end of all of these obstacles that have put in their been put in their way and 
Harry is able to get the stone from the mirror because as Dumbledore explains it later, one of his more brilliant ideas was to say, well, I'm going to make this mirror so that only the person who wants to get the stone but not use it can get the stone from the mirror. But then it just like ends up in his pocket when it wasn't there before. Like, what? I've never understood this. This makes no sense to me. I don't get it either. And how did he enchant that? Like, that seems like super tricky magic. And how would the mirror actually be able to tell that that was your intent? Mm. Or like, well, I'm, I think it would be able to tell your intent the same way it could tell your desires. But I'm wondering, like, did Dumbledore didn't make the mirror, right? <laughs> and so I feel like that's something you would have to do when you were making the mirror. Right? Like, I don't know. That's That's a whole weird thing. But I guess... It's one of those things like time travel. You can't really question too much because then you get in the weeds and it doesn't work yeah. anymore. I got to ask, this is my big thing. Do you think Dumbledore lied when Harry Potter asked him what he saw in the mirror? Absolutely. I think he lied. Do you think he saw Grindelwald in the mirror? No, I don't think he saw Grindelwald in the mirror. My thought, my thought is that he sees his sister and possibly his parent. Mm in the mirror because Grindelwald is still alive at this point um, in the stories and Dumbledore would know that. And I think that Dumbledore, although he regrets what Grindelwald became and he may still harbor some feelings for him, I think that isn't he like, had, I was just say, isn't like, like super in love with him anymore. It's not his. Yeah. I think he's, desire. I think he's, giving him given him up that he has gotten past that but i don't think he has gotten past what happened to his sister and the breakdown of his family so i think that he is more like harry and would want his family to be intact yeah as i say like i always i mean even i've always thought that he lied because for context if you don't know when harry asked what he saw he said he saw a pair of woolen socks right mm -hmm. um that hasn't ever made sense to me because i mean he's talked about how like you know he saw people like waste away in front of the mirror and mm -hmm. i i just like the way he says it makes me feel like he saw that in himself and like he has spent like hours or years or whatever you know just staring into the mirror for something he can't have yeah. um yeah i think i think a lot of people have also posited that his like his sister dying is what he sees when he drinks the potion in number six as well oh, okay. um because you hear a lot of no you know take me instead or you know some things along with similar lines where mm. it's just like big time regret and pain right yeah. and i think that that's his biggest source of it that would make sense because sorry this is totally off topic i was gonna say that would make sense though because harry's job right is to make sure he drinks all of the potion but like that's the best way for voldemort to avert somebody drinking all the potion is for somebody to be wishing for death yeah right? absolutely yeah so if he's in the throes of physical and emotional pain like mm -hmm. in the very depths yeah. of it that very clever and very dastardly yes <laughs> uh, voldemort is clever he is, and it's something He's a that makes a formidable foe, right? Um, although with all the inbreeding in his family, I'm surprised he can think at all. <laughs> <I know. laughs> 
Especially because seriously, when they talk about his family, they're like hillbillies. They are. Like, they're like, like real hillbillies. It's like watching um, um okay. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the actual like history of this book. So J.K. Rowling had the idea for this on a train ride from Manchester to London in 1990. Um, as far as I remember the story being told, she like only had like a napkin to yeah. write on on this train and was like, there's a boy with a lightning shaped scar. And that was like the initial thought for Harry Potter. So she was at the time a single mother living on welfare in Edinburgh and she would write in cafes while her baby napped. And then this is so interesting to me. So she, she did sell the rights to Bloomsbury in England and her advance was 2,500 pounds or about $3,500. That's like nothing. I know. That's what I was thinking. And I, I have absolutely no idea what a normal advance no, would be like, but that does seem like not very much to me. Especially when it's like, I have no money. I'm super poor. I'm trying to publish a book and they're like, yeah, we'll publish your book. Here's $3,000. And you're like, yeah, Great. that's like barely a month's salary. And if you're living in a city like Edinburgh, I would think that her rent would probably be somewhat close to that. Right. Like yeah. it would be hard to live on something like that. But as we know, she has since become one of the richest women in the UK. Uh, shortly after it was published in Britain, Arthur Levine in America bought the rights for $105,000, which apparently is pretty impressive for an advance, uh, especially I would think on like a first book. Mm -hmm. And so with that money, she was able to retire from teaching and start writing full time, which is interesting because I feel like that's not enough to retire on, I, but I yeah. it's a year's salary. And I guess maybe at that point she they knew it was a series and she knew she was going to be getting more money from it. Okay. I think maybe that that's, that's the deal, but it's, it was when it got published in America that it really became a sensation. And I guess they said it was almost immediate that it spent months on the bestseller list of New York times bestseller list. And it just like super skyrocketed really. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, when, was the last time and when will be the next time that you have something that is that much of a phenomenon as yeah. Harry Potter was because I was thinking I was like Twilight was huge but it was not like that no and you know I'm like there were a couple other things I can think of like Percy Jackson Your where it's name. like everybody you knew read it yeah. but like nothing was like Harry Potter was or still is like its yeah. influence is continuous um not only like I remember when they announced the title of Half Blood Prince on the news, like it was yeah. that big of a thing. <laughs> no, it is. It is just a humongous cultural thing at this point, and it's worldwide. So it's it's just it's insane, and I feel so privileged to have been a part of I know. that. <laughs> to have I know grown up during that, but I do. Let's see. Oh, so yeah, we do know, of course, that J.K. Rowling is now filthy rich. Um, 
and that she actually, and you may have seen memes floating around about this. And so I've got the real actual scoop for you. She became a billionaire in like 2011. And then she, the next year dropped off the Forbes billionaire list. And it will tell you online that it's, she was the first person to drop off the list, which is untrue. Um, and it will also tell you that it was only because she donated to charity, which is also not true. It is British taxes being really, really high was also <laughs> a factor um, in this. But she did donate $160 million to charity once she hit that billion dollar mark, which is nothing to sneeze at. No. Well, it's funny because that's a lot of money. But it's also like a drop in the bucket when you're a billionaire, I know. you know. I know. But, but I would hope that when if I when I'm a billionaire, if I were ever a billionaire, <laughs> that when. it's certain, you know, <laughs> that if I were ever a billionaire, that I because I always think about that. I'm like, if I had all the money in the world, I'm like, of course I would do all these things for myself. But I'm like, I'd be wanting to pay people's like college tuitions and stuff. No, I feel like that too. I'm like, I just and I think about it, and I'm like, I don't think I could stomach buying like a 500 million dollar house oh no there's no like, why there's what no point. The point of that? like i can imagine maybe spending two million on a house if it was on a really really good location and i just loved it but i don't know if i'd want a house that big no because you would like, never use all the rooms like and it's just lonely you yeah. know so even that i'm like i i don't think i could manage that and i would never care enough about cars to buy like a no, really expensive car like the most i would do is buy like a brand new thirty thousand dollar car right like, <laughs> like a normal a kind new of sedan yeah just like <laughs> right like not anything big honda so, civic yeah so i think about that a lot too and i'm like maybe i just pick random people and be like hi i'm gonna pay all of your college tuition you can go to harvard if you want and it's covered right yeah <laughs> It would be really fun. Okay. Something that was interesting about these books too, and I think part of the reason why it entered into the collective consciousness so much is because it was one of those rare books that appeals to both children and adults. To the and point, boys and girls. That's true, actually. And it was so popular among adults that British publishers issued an edition with a less colorful cover so that adults could read it on the train without hiding it behind their newspaper. <laughs> Okay, that's really funny that people were doing that in the first place. But I'm like, how dumb. I'm like, I read what I read and it's like, whatever. Sometimes I do that, though, where I'm like, it's out somewhere and I have my book and I'm like, what do people think about this book that I'm reading? Because I do that. I look at people's books. Anytime I see anybody reading, I'm like, what are you reading? And I'm like, trying to see what they're reading. You know? I have had people ask me before, just come up and be like, that happened to me somewhere recently where she's like oh what are you reading and i was like oh it's this and then she's like oh can i look at the synopsis or so and i was oh, like man, really okay <laughs> yes <Yeah>, <laughs> i like gave her my book and she like read the synopsis and was like oh that sounds interesting um the only time i ever hide the cover of my book is if there's something on the cover or the title of the book is something that I think maybe people might object to, like sex with presidents, you know, that I might yeah. be like hiding it. So people, so people yeah. aren't like, Oh my gosh, what are you reading? You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So Harry Potter is part of a long tradition of English fantasy 
that seems to be for kids, but are actually like deep allegories of the human condition. C.S. Lewis. Yeah, right. So we're talking uh, Lord of the Rings. We're talking Narnia. And those books in particular seem to be super, super foundational for pretty much any fantasy writer, but particularly for writers in Britain. Um, I know we know that Neil Gaiman was hugely influenced by the Narnia series. So these these books are just like I love I love so much the way that she writes them and the little details that she adds. And I think that that's a big part of their appeal. So I was going to ask you, what are some of your favorite little details that make the story unique or magical? So I'll, I'll tell you some of mine so you kind of know where I'm going here. Like, okay, so first of all, the cupboard under the stairs, the fact that he lives in a cupboard under the stairs is just so like, weird and the fact that the letters that come to him are addressed to Mr. H. Potter covered under the stairs for Privet Drive. Like, yeah. That sounds so British though. That's like such a British <laughs> writing thing. Um I also love the platform nine and three quarters, like as if to say it doesn't really exist or it exists somewhere different than here because here you're only going to get nine and ten because that's what's typical you know it just makes it a little bit tweaked um another example is like at hogwarts how the staircases change places Mm -hmm. and they just move randomly you know um just stuff like that that makes the the series seem so out of the ordinary just the details are awesome to me so do you have anything like that that you really like i really like um the locations of the dorms as well as the entry methods yeah how they're all just like to like i just love it because it's like gryffindor's in a tower and hufflepuff is by the kitchens you know it's just like so (laughs) random but then you know you have like the gryffindors just have a password but then, like, the Ravenclaws are having to answer, like, riddles and stuff. To get oh, my into gosh. I would never be able to get into my common room if I were a Ravenclaw. I'd just be stuck out there forever. Didn't they say that? Like, sometimes they go by and there's, like, people sleeping outside the door because they couldn't yeah. get in? Like, <laughs> um, I also really like, like, all the candies in, like, Honeydukes. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as all of the stuff that um, Fred and George have in Weasley's Wizard Weezes. Details like how the rules are Quidditch, the rules of Quidditch are open enough that there was like a game that went on for like a year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just things like that, that where the rules are just dumb enough that you get these absurd situations. Yes. Yes. And also that Hogwarts is so incredibly safe, right? Safe yes. as <laughs> <laughs> my gosh. And then you have these 11 year olds who are like dying every five seconds. But they made Harry Potter compete in the tournament because his yeah. name was in the goblet. Right. <laughs> um, Yes. So Christine mentioned earlier about me crying and there are a few spots. There's one spot in the two spots, two spots in the movies that I always cry. And in the books, there are a few specific spots where I always choke up and it's really stupid, but I can't help it. Especially when I'm reading the books out loud, like 
I and I'm like as I'm like it gets terrible. So one of those times happens in this first book, and it's in the chapter called Halloween. And at this point, Hermione was not part of their friend group. Um, they had a situation where Ron said something insensitive and hurt Hermione's feelings, and she was just in the bathroom crying all day on Halloween. And then they find out that a troll was released into the school. So while there's chaos with kids trying to get back to their common rooms so they can be safe, which why does that make them safe necessarily? Because the trolls can get in the common rooms probably. Not only that, but they're like running around in the hallways. <laughs> right? Like why didn't they just keep everybody in the great hall? But um, anyway, so they're running along and they see, they figure out that the troll is heading for the bathroom that Hermione has been hiding in. And Harry and Ron, once again, taking all the responsibility of the world onto themselves, run to this bathroom and save Hermione. And then they get in trouble from the teachers, which is the dumbest scene in any Harry Potter book, uh, because there was no need for them to get in trouble for this. But they did. And then once all the teachers leave and everything, and it's all over, there's this line at the very end of the chapter. It says, but from that moment on, Hermione Granger became their friend. And I'm choking up as I'm reading it right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are some things you can't share without ending up liking each other. And knocking out a 12-foot mountain troll is one of them. And I have no idea why that gets me, but it does every freaking time. Uh, it's terrible. That's funny. I don't know if I have any like feel good moments in the movies slash books. Well, okay. I will say the things that always get me are all the spots where Harry just stops and says like, I love magic. Like, yeah. Are, I really like those scenes, but I like those scenes too. Like, no, the, the things guaranteed to make me cry are just the sad things. Okay. So we've talked your ear off quite a bit already, and we haven't even talked about the scene. So let's talk about the scene, because I didn't even tell you what we're talking about today. We're making chocolate frogs from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So let's talk about these chocolate frogs, how they work in the book, and also how they work in the movie, because they're slightly different. Okay, so at this point in the book, Harry has found his way to platform nine and three quarters with the help of the Weasley family whom he has just met. Um, and he ends up sitting in a train compartment with Ron. And eventually, after they've talked for a little while and kind of like been wowed at each other, I kind of love that they both are super impressed with the other person. Like Ron, yes, he has, he's got the Harry Potter lore in his mind, but he's also like super interested in like the muggle stuff and like yeah. what his life has been like, you know? And Harry, of course, is just as interested in Ron um, because he's never really talked to anybody besides Hagrid who doesn't really count as far as a wizard goes. Yeah. Um, and so this is a really interesting conversation for them. And then this happens. Around half past 12, there was a great clattering outside in the corridor and a smiling, dimpled woman who will forever be ruined for me now because of Cursed Child. Why? Uh, what was Cursed Child? What was in Cursed Child? The trolley lady. Oh, the trolley lady. For some reason, I was thinking it was Molly. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We're no, on no. the train. Okay. The trolley witch. Yeah. Okay. 
anyway, she's now smiling and dimpled, but she's not so smiling and dimpled and cursed child. Woman slid back their door and said, anything off the cart, dears? Harry, who hadn't had any breakfast, leapt to his feet, but Ron's ears went pink again, and he muttered that he'd brought sandwiches. Harry went out into the corridor. He had never had any money for candy with the Dursleys, and now that he had pockets rattling with gold and silver, he was ready to buy as many Mars bars as he could carry. But the woman didn't have Mars bars. What she did have were Bertie Bott's Every Flavor Beans, Drubal's Best Blowing Gum, Chocolate Frogs, Pumpkin Pasties, Cauldron Cakes, Licorice Wands, and a number of other strange things Harry had never seen in his life. Not wanting to miss anything, he got some of everything and paid the woman 11 silver sickles and seven bronze nuts. He then comes back into the compartment and he shares with Ron what he has gotten because Ron has a corned beef sandwich that he doesn't like. And in the um, movie, it's like in a wad. It looks horrible. Yeah. <laughs> True. Okay. And then we come here. What are these? Harry asked Ron, holding up a pack of chocolate frogs. They're not really frogs, are they? He was starting to feel that nothing would surprise him. No, said Ron, but see what the card is. I'm missing Agrippa. What? Ah, oh, of course, you wouldn't know. Chocolate frogs have cards inside them, you know, to collect. Famous witches and wizards. I've got about 500, but I haven't got Agrippa or Ptolemy. Harry unwrapped his chocolate frog and picked up the card. It showed a man's face. He wore half moon glasses, had a long crooked nose and flowing silver hair, beard, and mustache. Underneath the picture was the name Albus Dumbledore. So this is Dumbledore, said Harry. Okay, so this scene is really interesting because just in this one paragraph here, I think the food is here to highlight all of the new that he's in, all of the unusual and different and it's highlighting the fact that he is in a completely new place. He has a completely new life. And it's, it's here too, because he never has had money for candy before. Like this is a new experience for him to have money, right? That his parents left him. He pays seven silver or 11 silver sickles and seven bronze nuts you know, that's, it's different money. Everything about this entire scene is completely and totally new and interesting and fun. And I think that the food is there just to highlight that fact, to be honest. Novelty. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the interesting thing though, about this is how actually normal most of this candy is. Yeah. Right? So a chocolate frog is just a chocolate frog. It's not a real frog, right? It's in the movie. Okay, so here's where the movie scene differs. Because in the movie, the chocolate frog actually jumps. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it, it's, it's enchanted. Alive. Yeah, which in the book, it doesn't appear to be that way. It's just a chocolate in the shape of a frog. And it has a collector's card, which is a very muggle-ish thing, right? We have candies and other things that have toys or collecting cards, but it's like blowing or like bubblegum, right? Licorice. Licorice. Yeah. And I, you know, cauldron cakes, we don't really ever get a description of what they are, but my guess is it's like a hostess cupcake. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, 
pumpkin pasties are slightly different just because I, I don't know that I would normally see something like that on a candy cart or whatever, but pasties are not uncommon in England. No. And it's just the fact that they're pumpkin flavored. And I don't know if pumpkin flavor is like super abnormal for a pasty um, or what, but it's just so interesting that they just have weird names that you've never heard before, uh, but they are fairly typical candies that you would see, except for the birdie bots, which you can purchase. Um, They're just terrible my, jelly beans. Yeah, and my kids love them because they think it's hilarious to watch people squirm and get really nasty flavored jelly beans. Um, but they are, they're just jelly beans, except for the fact that there are some really disgusting tasting ones. Cause Ron says later, they mean every flavor. Like yeah. you get regular ones, but then you get some really awful ones. And George swears he got a bogey flavored one once. <laughs> um, so there is one other thing that I think that this, the chocolate frog itself serves a purpose for, and that's introducing you to Dumbledore, right? Yes. Um, it's, it's the first, I mean, you've seen Dumbledore already in the book, but this is Harry's first introduction to Dumbledore. He has never seen him. He doesn't know anything about him, except that Hagrid loves him and thinks he's awesome, right? And the other thing it does is set up pretty much the entire story because it mentions on Dumbledore's card, Nicholas Flamel, who it has the Philosopher's Stone. He's the only known owner of a Philosopher's Stone. And eventually, they, as they're going around looking for Nicholas Flamel, they realize that it's on this chocolate frog card that they had heard the name before, mm -hmm. right? So it's kind of a setup for the whole story. Okay, so guys, remember last week when on our Aristocats episode, how we didn't actually like <laughs> history of creme de la creme a la edgar because there was no history i was wondering what, what? Th what this was gonna be <laughs> there is no history for chocolate frogs either because one it's just a chocolate shaped like a frog shaped chocolate and two it's like magical food that jk Rowling made up so we have nothing here so we're going to kind of go that same direction here and we're going to talk about instead the history of the philosopher's stone Cool. Okay. So this book was originally published as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in England. Um, and this is a reference to alchemy, which we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but publishers in the U.S. thought that the word philosopher would like turn American kids off of the book. And so they, they changed right. it. So at that, they were absolutely right. <laughs> no American kid would ever pick that up. <laughs> oh, they did a good thing. That I think that was a really good call. It's interesting to me, though, that they didn't feel like that in England. And I wonder if it's because the lore of like alchemy and the lore of the Philosopher's Stone is just more part of their, their collective consciousness and not American. Possibly. Possibly. I'm... I've I've seen it expressed before that the idea was that like British kids aren't afraid of words they don't understand. <laughs> but maybe that was just a, a dig at Americans. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's just that 
Americans have less of a grasp on the old. Mm, yeah. Um, Which makes for sense. For reason. It does. Well, that, that makes sense because we're all about the new. Like, we're not an old country. You know, yeah. particularly compared to places like England that have been around since the beginning of time. Yeah. You know, it's we're we are a relatively young country and we have a consistently shifting idea of like culture and society and it's like I feel like we're constantly changing. Yeah. Um versus like other cultures that hang on to tradition. Yeah. So I've think... always been like a place of migration. And so I think we're having constant influxes, like from like for a long time, we were having constant mm -hmm. influxes of like different populations coming in and then it like shifts the culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that maybe just because we don't have as much of a grasp on the older things that it makes sense that one philosophy mm -hmm. and two, the philosopher's stone that would make sense yeah. to American kids. So I think it was a good call. Um, so if you are unfamiliar with alchemy, it is based on the belief that there is an unknown substance that is capable of turning base metals to gold and also can create the elixir of life, which can be used for rejuvenation and therefore immortality. So obviously this was a very coveted item, right? Um, so alchemists throughout the ages have been trying to find the sorcerer's stone or create the sorcerer's stone or philosopher's stone so that they can be rich and immortal, <laughs> which is like, isn't that everybody's end game? <laughs> right? um, okay. So interestingly, I had no idea about this ancient writers many of them claim that the stone's origin goes back to adam who acquired the knowledge of the stone directly from god and interesting that, right and that this knowledge then passed through biblical patriarchs like keeping keeping it alive okay so that makes sense for why it stuck around for so long because it's like yeah. it's from the bible god told him you know not just yeah, like exactly. yeah some dude told me <laughs> Yeah. The interesting thing about this, though, is that it says that the knowledge of the stone comes from God, not that the stone itself was yeah. given to Adam, right? So he was just told about it, which means that either it's not a natural substance and has to be created, or that it's like the biggest mystery in history where you're like, well, where is this stone? You know? <laughs> yeah. That seems like a weird, that seems like a, okay, maybe this is just coming from like my own theology, but that seems like a weird thing to me for God to have been like, there exists a stone, you know, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah. And not like, here is a stone. And not only that, but like, Adam was immortal until yeah. the fall. And so yeah. that's a little weird that he'd be like, just in case you need it. <laughs> And the thing is, too, that immortality is a basic tenet of Christianity, right? Yeah, and that's true. Many religions is that you are you perpetuate after you die, right? In some form or another, depending on your religion. And so the only thing really then that this is offering that God, you know, didn't just 
already give to them would be lots and lots of gold. So I don't know. It seems like a weird story. Yes, but at the same time, like before the fall, they wouldn't have had need for gold because everyone provided for them. Very true. Okay, so the theoretical roots can be traced to Greek philosophy. So Plato, okay, so Plato is like in on this. So he believed that the four elements, um, you know, your four basic elements, air, fire, water, earth, uh, were derived from something called the prima materia, or like the first material, right? And that they all derived from this substance and that this substance is what creates the sorcerer's stone. Um, So finding the sorcerer's stone or being able to create it will allow you to kind of like control these elements, I guess. Would that make it like a fifth element? Maybe. If it can create the four elements and the philosopher's stone? Yeah, possibly. Um, So this prima materia is also the name assigned to the starting ingredient for creating the stone. So it does seem like the further on you get that it has, that it's not that the stone exists, but that it has to be created. But you have to be able to find the right material in order to be able to make that stone. Um, So this idea really, really took hold in the Middle Ages, which is interesting because that is where the wizarding world seems to be stuck. Yeah. Right. Um, Let me also say just for um, sake of interest that Plato also is the one who came up with the idea of Atlantis. So like, I think Plato was just like throwing out a lot of weird ideas. He's like the Luna Lovegood of Greek philosophy. Well, it's funny because he wasn't even like, oh, there is a, you know, like Atlantis was like a thought, like a thought um, experiment. Yeah. But then people were like, oh, Atlantis is a real place. And Plato's like, no, no. So so maybe, maybe the Philosopher's Stone was also meant to be a thought experiment. Oh, maybe that's possible. Um, But yeah, no, they took it very literally. So this a Muslim scholar named Jabir ibn Hayyan, he posited that each element was, had different elements that made it up. So like fire was hot and dry, earth was cold and dry, water was cold and moist, and air was hot and moist. And I'm like, okay, first of all, your your experience is really limited. (laughs) Here in Las Vegas, we have very hot and dry air. Yeah. <laughs> and water is not always cold and moist. It, it, it can be very warm and moist, right? Funny. Clearly, um, he's but, never heard of a volcano. <laughs> right. Like, so his idea was that every metal was a combination of these elements and that you just needed to rearrange the basic qualities in order to create different metals. That just sounds so convoluted to me. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't even know how, how he came up with that idea. He's like, oh, well, this metal is made out of cold and moist, so we'll just make it cold and dry, and then it'll be different. Like, how what's, would you go about doing that? What's funny is that it's like he was right in a very wrong way. <laughs> Because I'm thinking like different metals are in fact made from different elements, just not the kind of elements you're thinking of. Yeah, but it's like like arbitrarily change those elements. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, 
it, yeah, not at least not that we know of, right? <laughs> Science has not gotten to that point. Um, but he did believe that this change would be mediated by that prima materia, which he called al-ixir, which is the basis for our word elixir, and that it comes from the stone. So in order to be able to change those metals, you have to go, go for the stone. So the interesting thing here is that all of them are like, oh yeah, well, metals can definitely be changed. The only thing is we need that stone that nobody has ever seen and doesn't you know, like to be able to make these things happen. So it's like a total hypothesis here that nobody's ever tested, but yeah. they all believe that the stone exists and can do all these things, right? Um, so this continued all the way through the Renaissance. Um, I think after the Renaissance, it kind of started dropping off and people had gone through enough scientific things to be like, ah, I don't know that this really holds any store anymore. You know, they started getting more interested in things that they could observe. Um, rather than just random hypotheses. Mm -hmm. So it kind of fell off. Um, interestingly though, so the there is an alchemical symbol that um, represents all four of those ancient elements, fire, earth, water, air. And it looks eerily similar to the Deathly Hallows symbol. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I like, when I saw it online, I was like, holy crap, that's, that's basically the same thing. So there is a triangle and a circle, just like there is in Deathly Hallows, but then it includes a square and... Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, so the, the difference is that they take out the square and what's the other thing? So I'm not looking at it anymore. It's like a circle inside a square, inside a triangle, inside a circle. Okay. So yeah, and then there is a line for the Deathly Hallows because there's only three hallows and four elements. But, and it may just be the way that it's rendered, but they look eerily similar. And I think, okay, this, this is so interesting to me because, so in Philosopher's Stone, we've already talked about how Harry was able to get the stone out of the mirror because he wanted to get the stone but not use it, right? Mm -hmm. He just wanted to keep it away from the person who's going to use it for evil purposes. And he, he wants to be good with it. He has no desire for immortality or big riches, right? That's not on his mind. Yeah. And then it comes full circle because in Deathly Hallows, he does the exact same thing. So Voldemort is searching for the hallows, the cloak and the wand and the stone in order to be able to use them to become the master of death and never die, right? Uh, Dumbledore essentially sends Harry on the same search. He is also trying to get all of the hallows, but for the exact same reasons as the stone. He has no interest in actually using these items to be master of death. And in fact, he does become, like he does get all of the items and he is able to use those things to help himself a little bit, but also to defeat Voldemort. And then in the end, he gets rid of them. Like yeah. he, the only one he keeps is the cloak, which was his by right be, being passed down through his family. And it's the only one that really has a good reputation, yeah. but the, the stone and the wand he gets rid of, he doesn't want them united. He doesn't want to be the master of death. And he just is 
he just wants to be a person. And I just, I think that's so interesting that those things kind of come up in the first and then the seventh book. Okay. So with that, not talking about frogs at all, we are going to now try our chocolate frogs. So I have to tell you that this is a recipe that I kind of came up with uh, by myself um, based on some other recipes that I had seen and also based on just how I kind of wanted the chocolate frogs to be. So I do not like plain chocolate, like a chocolate bar I am not interested in, right? And that's kind of what these chocolate frogs were. So I changed it a little bit. And when we celebrate, um, we celebrate Harry Potter Day every July 31st. And also when my kids turn 11, they have a big like, Harry Potter Hogwarts send off birthday party. And so when we do those things, um, I will make a bunch of different things and chocolate frogs are one of the things that I tend to make. Uh, and so I wanted it to be different than just chocolate. So I created a middle for it that is peanut butter based. Um, it's just like peanut butter and I don't even have like amounts, just peanut butter, a little bit of soft butter and some, uh, enough powdered sugar to make it sweet. Right. So kind of like a candy middle. And then I put like chunks of pretzel in there to make it crunchy. I forgot to do that. Oh, that's unfortunate. (laughs) The reason why I do that honestly is because of the crunchy frog skit from my (laughs) no (laughs) you're putting bones in there I know exactly (laughs) so I couldn't help it though because I was like it needs something else I was like I'm gonna make a crunchy frogs (laughs) oh my gosh I have not thought about that in years Okay, so I just watched it again in order to write this like episode, but you guys, if you have not seen the Monty Python sketch called Crunchy Frog, you really need to go watch it. <laughs> it's great. Um, so first off, in, in the sketch, I didn't realize this until just this time when I watched it, that the chocolate company is called Wizzo. So oh, it is? <laughs> yeah, it's Wizzo Chocolates, which awesome. is also one of my favorite parts of another sketch because they have it, it's like an ad for Wizzo butter go watch Wizzo butter oh Wizzo butter is my favorite but the dead crab um I, I can't tell the difference between this Wizzo yeah, butter and this dead crab <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh it's so great okay so yeah Wizzo chocolates and so it's two police officers who are coming into this um chocolate company like I guess the the owner of the chocolate company and talking to him about the chocolates and the (laughs) they've got like a big heart you know like a Russell Stover like mixed bag kind of thing and so he pulls up the police officer pulls out one and he's like first of all this one's just nasty but we can't get you for that that. like okay yeah you can't do anything to me about that and then he's like but what about number four it's called crunchy frog and he's like it's not a real frog is it and he's like yes it is the best baby frog that we fly in from madagascar and they like you know does this little spiel about it 
like all you know food companies will do and he's like but it's a real frog did you cook it and he's like no and he's like it's a raw baby frog and then he's like you don't even take the bones out and he's like if you didn't take the or if we took the bones out it wouldn't be crunchy Crunchy. (laughs) (laughs) so created a non-real but crunchy frog that's amazing (laughs) i the one i thought of when you said crunchy frog was the what was it it was like cherry cordial surprise or something and they're like what's the surprise and he's like two spring-loaded bolts shoot out your cheeks yes. or something like <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i haven't thought about that in years that's so funny so anyway that's how i came up with the <laughs> crunchy frog uh, i forgot to put the pretzels in line also let it be known i did not have a frog mold so what i have is a not crunchy stormtrooper <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> okay, take pictures of your non-crunchy stormtrooper because we'll have to put that up with my crunchy frog. Okay. <laughs> okay, what do you think of my recipe? And it might be different than what I do because you may have used different amounts of things than I did. Yeah. Unless you have any crunch. Yeah, there's no crunch. Sorry. I bought pretzels just to do this and I, I like <laughs> forgot last minute um it's good i like it i actually added a little bit of vanilla to mine Ooh, that's good i I think i might usually put some salt in there too like yeah the flavor actually kind of reminds me of those like no-bake oat cookies that are just like Mm. peanut butter yeah um and so it's like a flavor i already like so it's good um i use semi-sweet chocolate for my sheldon i think i would have preferred milk but that's just personal preference yeah but it's good i honestly i think it needs the pretzels because otherwise particularly if it's not tempered it's all just one texture and so i think Mm -hmm. the pretzels probably are a really good addition and it probably helps with the saltiness too yes i i agree and that's part of the reason why i wanted it in there for texture purposes and and then also for that contrast in taste with the salt but i really like them i think they're tasty as far as candy goes and um my kids really like them when I make them. They fly off the little frogs jumping around. So, yeah, we really like them. So we'll put up the recipe for you. So hopefully, well, I mean, our non-recipe recipe. It, the non-recipe. It was literally like, I didn't give you the recipe. Okay, here it is. Take some peanut butter. Add some powdered sugar. Add some butter. <laughs> a little butter. Yeah, that was literally what I did. I was like, sorry, I forgot to tell you how to make it. Here's how you make it. So I didn't even give her like amounts. <laughs> It's okay because there are two kinds of people when cooking and one is just throw stuff in until it looks right. And one is like, everything has to be measured, you know, and you're like, put in a dash of this and they're like, how much? And you're like, until it tastes right. And they're like, what does that mean? How much is it? And you're like, I don't know. Does it taste good or not? And they're just like, is it a quarter of a teaspoon? Is it hot? You know? And it's like, I am the former and Will is the latter. (laughs) (laughs) You need amounts. I, I enjoy having amount or no 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 wait which one are you i was gonna say maybe i said that backwards i'm i'm cook by feel yeah well i think that some of that just comes with comfort in the kitchen because when i was first starting out cooking i felt like i had to measure everything and that i couldn't change anything in any recipe but now that i'm much more comfortable there i will 
much more often. Like I don't even measure my spices most of the time when I'm putting them in stuff. I'll just like eyeball it and be like, that's about a teaspoon. Or I'm like, I like way more cumin than that and put in way more cumin, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So sorry if you're the kind of person that (laughs) needs measurements because this recipe is not a measurement recipe. I think it's some of that. And then I think it's also a personality thing because I mean, Will's been cooking for ever and he still just prefers to know amounts but like i like i will say for the comfort thing when you gave me your recipe or carol's recipe for um biscuits and gravy Mm -hmm. that's how the recipe was it was like add some milk add some flour and i was like how much and you're like you're like i don't know it's not an amount you just do it until it looks right and i'm like what is that you know but like when you gave me this recipe i was like okay that's fine yeah (laughs) Yeah. well and it depends on what you're making too like something just to that a little bit more and the biscuits have actual amounts but you're right the gravy is like I had to watch her do it and I had to make it a few times before I knew what I was doing because there are no amounts and it depends on how much fat is in the sausage that you're making or that you're using if you need to add a little more fat and how much flour and then you just pour milk and sometimes you have to pour more milk and like it's it's I I think it's personal preference too for how thick you want the gravy to be but anyway okay so now we're going to give you our ratings for the chocolate frogs which you can make crunchy or not crunchy, but I prefer them crunchy. So, Christine, what do we rate for time? So, for time, we have given this uh, trois baguettes. And um, honestly, like, I made mine in, like, a 20-minute window between dropping dropping my kid off at camp and, like, recording. Um, and it went really fast, particularly, like, if you're sticking stuff, like, in the fridge or the freezer, like, in between mm-hmm. stages it'll go a lot faster for you. But um, if you're not tempering your chocolate, all you are doing is filling molds and then you like empty them out, you know, let them freeze, put in the filling, more chocolate freeze. It's, which sounds like a lot of steps, but it's just, it doesn't take that long, especially because I only made a very small batch. Yeah. And you can make a really small batch for this. You can make it as big as you want because you don't have any measurements. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um okay for ease we are going to award this de baguette and this gets docked a little bit just because making chocolates can be a little fussy like melting chocolate if you're gonna temper your chocolate that's a whole different story uh that i would probably give it a one if we were going to be tempering chocolate but if you're not going to which i never bother to because i'm not making it for anybody but me and i don't care um then you melt your chocolate right and you make your peanut butter filling which is neither of those are difficult in and of themselves but you do have to like paint your mold you have to make sure your chocolate is not too hard like it has to be the right consistency to be able to do it you do need to like then fill each individual mold and then cover it with more chocolate and then also you have to make sure that you like get your chocolate hard before you try to turn them out or else they're going to be completely destroyed. Um, So none of the components themselves are terribly difficult, but just making sure that they come out nice can sometimes be a little bit difficult. Like if you have air bubbles in your chocolate um, or you don't fill Mm -hmm. your mold 
properly or things like that, it can, it can come out kind of a mess. This is the kind of thing where there's a lot of little um, tips and tricks you learn after having done it a mm. lot to that, like help you to get it to look right. And so like, I mean, I went to culinary school and I worked at a chocolate shop, like making yeah truffles you know and so like i've done this a lot and so this that's part of the reason why it went so fast for me but like like it's not hard when you know what you're doing but it may take some trial and error if you've never done it before because you need to make sure that your chocolate is like hard like you can't yeah. be putting the filling in if it's still a little bit soft or tacky you know or it's gonna totally screw it up there's just a lot of stuff like that where it's like knowing the right time to do things yeah that being said, if you're going to put your chocolate in the fridge or the freezer, which is what I always do, yeah. it doesn't take all that long for yeah. it to get super hard, but you just have to be patient with it. This is something where you have to be patient. Okay. And then Christine, what are we awarding for taste? So for taste, we awarded this trois baguette because um, it was good. I mean, it's, it's very just simple. It's kind of like eating a peanut butter cup um, with bones. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Um, or, or sans bones, if you're me, it's, I don't know. It's just good though. And, and what's good about not really having a recipe is that you can kind of just make it according to your taste. You can make it as mm -hmm. sweet as you want or as peanut buttery as you want. Um, or use almond butter or, yeah. or you could even just do a completely different filling. I mean, this one is very versatile. And so I think this recipe tasted good, but that there's room for you to kind of experiment and do what you like. Yep. I totally agree. And that is all that we have for you today about Harry Potter and the crunchy chocolate frogs. And so please visit us on our website to, to find pictures and the once again, non-recipe for this. And we'll put a link on there too, for where you can get a chocolate frog mold. I think I just got mine off of Amazon. And if you're like me, and you have Harry Potter parties every once in a while, it is useful to have this chocolate frog mold. Uh, not very expensive, so we'll put a link to that, and our website is thebittenwordpodcast.weebly.com. You can also see pictures and talk to us on our socials. Uh, you can talk to me on Instagram at thebittenwordpodcast, and you can also talk to Christine on Twitter at thebittenpod. And you can always email us too at uh, thebittenwordpodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you've got a second, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a review, we might read it here on the show. And tell your friends about us. We would love to be in more ears, as it were. And stick around and join us next week because we are going to be going back into video game land. And we're going to be talking about Bioshock and making the pep bars from that game. So please join us next week. And until then, happy reading and you're a wizard here.